Welcome to the Monterey Podcast. For more information, check out our website at montereychurch.com. Good morning, church. It's great to be back with you this morning. I'll tell you, one of the blessings and curses of getting to travel and be with different congregations so much is I hear many wonderful stories of of tremendous things that are happening in the life of the church uh, all over the place, and also hear other kinds of stories, things that congregations are experiencing challenges. I know an elderly gentleman who was a minister in Churches of Christ for about 50 years, it's a long time ministering in congregations. He and his wife retired from ministry and they moved down to Florida like a lot of people tend to do. And they found a local congregation there in town and they began to worship with them. It was a small little church. Some of you have been a part of small congregations before and you know that one of the things sometimes that happens in a small church, if they find out that you have some sort of teaching gift, I mean, you're, you're roped in really quick. And it happened to him. Uh, they were there just two or three weeks, in fact, and the rumor had circulated that he had been a minister for about 50 years, and so they found him, the elders did, one Sunday afternoon, and they said, hey, listen, we'd really like for you to teach our Sunday morning Bible class. He's kind of a humble man. He said, well, I'll consider that. He said, but you need to know this first. He said, I preached and ministered for 50 years in premillennial churches of Christ. Some of you are completely unfamiliar with what that means. Uh, early in the 20th century, there was a movement within American Christianity, premillennialism. And it became a really big issue within churches of Christ. And there are a lot of things involved with that. It had to do with how we perceive the end of the world would happen. And among other things, premillennialists had a little bit more negative view of the world in contrast to the extremely optimistic view of the world that was so common in the mid-20th century America. So he told them, I'm I'm a member of the premillennial churches of Christ. I just thought you should know that. The reason he wanted them to know that is in the mid-20th century, it became such a controversy within churches of Christ that a lot of journal editors and college presidents and preachers within churches of Christ did their work to push premillennials out of churches of Christ. They completely expunged this group from the mainstream congregations. And that's where this guy spent his whole life ministering. And so he told them, I just want to be honest, this is, these are the churches I come from. And so the elders went away for about 20 minutes to consult with one another, decide what they were going to do. And it didn't take very long. They came back and they said, well, not only do we not want you to teach in these classes, we would ask that you and your wife Go ahead and make plans to attend another church while you're in town. Paul once told the Galatians, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Another congregation Young minister, just out of school, green as green can be, never worked in a church before, gets a job preaching at this really small congregation. He's the only minister on staff. He is going to preach. Uh, He's going to teach the class. Sometimes he's going to lead singing and preach in the same service. It's a really small place. 
One Sunday morning, tragedy struck. He and his wife arrived very early as they typically did to set things up as they often did. And they were in the back behind the worship center and they noticed that they were out of grape juice. We're right before time to begin services, folks. And so they're quickly scrambled, how do we handle this? So what they decided, he was going to go out and begin service. She was going to run to the grocery store just down the street, and everything was going to be okay. And it was. She got back. She filled the trays just in time for the communion service to start. No one else knew. Service went off without a hitch until after the service. Gentleman B lined it up to the minister right after he was done, and he said, Do you happen to have the bottle that that grape juice came in? Sure. What could possibly go wrong here, right? So he goes and he, he brings the bottle out, and the elderly gentleman said, Just as I thought. He said, That says vitamin C enriched grape juice. New Testament doesn't say anything about vitamin C and rich grape juice for communion. <laughs> and that young minister did just what you did. He laughed. But that older gentleman did not laugh. He was very upset. In fact, he was so upset that he left that morning with a handful of other members of that congregation and they never came back. Paul once told the Galatians, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Long for the day, church, when we will be known simply as Christians. Not as those people who have a praise team or who don't have a praise team. Not as that group of people who use one cup for communion or multiple cups for communion. Along for the day, we will not be known as those people who believe in a premillennial reign of Christ or a postmillennial reign of Christ or no millennial reign of Christ at all. Along for the day, we will not be known as those who support children's homes and those who don't support children's homes. Those who are ecumenical and those who are legalists. Those who are black. Those who are white. Or those who are liberal and those who are conservative or even those who are Republican and those who are Democrat. In fact, I echo the desire of so many who come before us I long for the day when people look at us and they see simply how we love each other, but even more importantly, they see how we love people outside of these walls and based just on that, they look at us and they say, those must be followers of Jesus Christ. Those people must be Christians because that's what Christians do. Wouldn't that be great? Father, I thank you for who you are.
I thank you for the freedom that you've given us in Christ. I thank you for the opportunities that you've given us to express that freedom to the rest of the world. I'm thankful for those that you've surrounded us with. People that we can show the true character, identity, and nature of God. God, would you give us the courage to do that? Would you give us the courage to just be Christians? Nothing else. Saved by the gospel. Nothing else. God, allow your spirit to be alive in our, our lives and the life of this church. In the name of Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen. Years ago, Paul wrote these words to the Galatians. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Listen, I, Paul, am telling you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Once again, I testify to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obliged to obey the entire law. You who want to be reckoned as righteous by the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. Did you hear that part? The only thing that counts is faith working through love. You were running well. Who prevented you from obeying the truth? Such persuasion has not come from the one who calls you. You know, a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. And I'm confident about you and the Lord that you will not think otherwise. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. But my brothers and sisters, why am I still being persecuted if I'm still preaching circumcision? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish that those who unsettle you would castrate themselves. Now, in case you missed it, sometimes things get lost in translation. Paul's upset. He's very upset. And in fact, he's upset throughout this entire letter. This is not Philippians where Paul talks so much about joy. From the beginning to the end of Galatians, Paul is furious. And you can see it in his writing. Virtually every paragraph, he's going after these people about something. A few weeks ago, when we started Galatians, we learned some things about what may have precipitated this letter, but not everything. It was impossible to tell them what the central issue was. Why did Paul write this letter to the Galatians? 
Someone else has said that when we're reading these New Testament letters, we need to remember that we are reading someone else's mail. So I wonder as I read Galatians, why did Paul put this thing in the mailbox? What is he trying to communicate to these people that is so important? From the very beginning of Galatians, we learn that some people had arrived in the community and they were preaching a gospel that was different from the one that the Galatians were first taught and the ones in which they first believed. But finally here, in chapter 5, we get the fuller picture. The direct conflict that precipitated the writing of Galatians centered on circumcision. According to Jewish law, many of you know this, males had to be circumcised as a pledge to their covenant with God. So according to the law, if a, if a male was circumcised, he was in covenant relationship with God. If he was not circumcised, he was not in covenant relationship with God. It was that simple. This was not a gray area at all. Apparently, some Jewish Christians had arrived with news for their Gentile brothers. In order to become a follower of Christ, they must first signify their covenant with God through circumcision. In other words, before they could become a follower of Christ, before they could become a Christian, they first had to become a Jew. Now, to us, that sounds a bit strange because we live in the 21st century and there's a clear line of demarcation between Judaism and Christianity, but it wasn't so in the beginning. You have to remember in the first several generations of the church, Jewish people believed that Christianity was simply the next logical step of Judaism. The covenant that God made with Abraham extended all the way through Christ. They were Judeo-Christian in every sense of that phrase. They did not sense that they were initiating or starting a new world religion. Judaism and Christianity were together. It was just the next logical step of Judaism all along the way. What that means is a lot of the Jewish Christians, probably all of them, they continued being Jewish the rest of their lives. They continued to go to Jewish festivals. They continued to go to the temple. They continued to practice feast days. They continued to do all of these things because they were Jewish. They didn't believe anything new was beginning here. So it just made sense. Before a Gentile accepted Jesus as the Messiah, he had to accept God just like all of the other Jews had done for millennia. That means he had to be circumcised. Paul, however, viewed this issue differently. And I have to imagine that Paul was in disagreement with a lot of people in the time in which he lived. Because Christ, Paul's message was this, that Christ came to bring freedom to the world. When Christ came, the burden of the law was taken away from the children. And he was extremely upset with his Jewish brothers and sisters for one reason. They were teaching to these people that a Christian was still bound to the law. They were adding something to the gospel. What they were doing is saying this, Jesus plus circumcision saves you. 
Jesus plus the law saves you. And Paul meant for them to understand one of the most basic tenets of the Christian faith. And here it is. Jesus plus anything else is not the gospel. It's just something else. Do you ever wonder why the Galatians, these Galatian Christians that came from a Jewish background, why was law so important to them? I know that in our time we have a rather negative view of the law. Especially all of us in here probably were raised in a, in a Protestant environment. We live on the other side of the Protestant Reformation. We live on the other side of people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zingli and these others that said that faith through grace saves you. That's, that's what matters. We live in a time where we've... we've devalued law to such an extent we can't find any place for it. Law in our context means something bad, has negative connotations, burden, harsh, legalism. These are the things we think of when we hear the law. But to a Jew, the law was something altogether different. To the Jew, the law was actually God's grace. The law, to a Jewish person living in the time in which Paul lived, they believed the law was a wonderful gift of God to them. In fact, the law was the gate through which one could walk to find access to God. By following the laws and by, by purifying themselves, people could gain access to God. God could draw near to them. The law was beautiful. So when Paul to the Galatians says that those who are under the law, and this is, these are his words, have fallen away from grace, this just didn't make any sense to them. The law was grace. The law was God's gift. But what they failed to realize, church, was this, as good as the law was, Christ is better and as great as it was to have temporary access to God through the law, it was only temporary. Christ granted not only temporary access, but a permanent pass into God's presence. I often wonder, how do you suppose these Galatians responded after reading this letter. We'll never know. But I think that we're on safe grounds to suggest that at the very least, these words must have been extremely difficult to hear. Because you see, for them, the law, it was safe. It's what they knew. The law, for them, it was comfortable. But church, freedom always beats comfort. There's a movie that came out several years ago that I know many of you probably have seen, The Truman Show. Jim Carrey in this movie plays an actor whose entire life 
has been a reality TV show. (laughs) And he doesn't even know it. From the time he was born, he was put in this enormous bubble, this dome, that really was only a few square miles in length. There was a producer of the show that, with just the push of a button, caused the sun to rise and set and the moon and the stars to come out, caused the waves to come through the ocean. And every single person that he ever met in his whole life was an actor. And he didn't know it. He was a star of the best-known, most successful reality TV show in the history of the world. As the movie begins, he's in his 30s, and he's beginning to figure things out. Some things aren't adding up. So he's asking a lot of questions. And finally, it gets so serious that one day he, he looks to escape it all, and he realizes something's off, and maybe this isn't real anymore, and he finds cameras in different places. So one day he jumps into a boat, and he sets out onto the ocean in a little sailboat. And the producer who's watching all of this happen knows that he has to stay in the bubble because that, the whole show depends on this. And so he's there with his buttons and he's pushing through. He makes a tidal wave come and a huge storm come. Truman almost dies. But finally the sun comes out. He sails that boat to the end of his world. And the end of his world is really just a painted canvas the boat runs into. Jumps out of the boat. Guess what? It's only about knee-deep water. He walks along the edge for a while. (laughs) Then he notices a staircase. My goodness. A staircase. He walks up, and there literally is above the staircase a door with a sign that says, Exit. He begins to walk the stairs. And as he's walking up the stairs, he hears a voice. The producer, for the first time, communicates with Truman. And he begins just spewing lie after lie after lie. Anything he can do to try to keep him in his artificial world. There's abundant life on the other side of that door. All he has to do is turn the knob and go through. But boy, is he tempted to stay where he is. Because where he is, it's what he knows. It's where it's safe. It's comfortable. Sometimes, church, we choose the law because it's safe. It's what we know. We can see it. We can quantify it. We can judge ourselves by it. And we can judge others by it too. But as children of God, I believe what God has called us to do is to ascend that staircase and recognize that the real life, the abundant life, is just to the other side of that door. These are pivotal years, pivotal years for Christians living in America. The number of Christians in America has declined sharply every year for the past 20 years. 
There's extreme polarization in our world, and I don't need to tell you that. I probably also don't need to tell you that that polarization has spilled over into the church. You know, we can disagree about just about anything, can't we? Boy, we're good at that. What we may not realize is that our divisions and our disagreements and our inability to show grace to one another, it repels the world. There are so many people that will never even come close to knowing God because they won't come close to us because they can't stand our divisions and they can't stand our fights. They can't stand the way we treat each other and they can't stand the way we treat other people. And we got to wake up and recognize that. One of the courses that I teach at ACU is Advanced Restoration History. I get to teach people about the beginnings of our movement. People like Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone. I grew up in churches of Christ my whole life, and I I never knew those names. I, I didn't hear anybody talk about those individuals. But as I've grown older, I've learned more about their lives. I've learned, for example, that they had the dream of bringing the church together. They lived in a time where Christians were divided over just about anything. They were divided over their allegiance to certain religious creeds. They were divided over their attendance in buildings with certain names on the marquees, denominational names. They were divided over just about anything, kind of like us. But Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone and many others in their time, they had this idea, wouldn't it be great if the church could just be one, (laughs) if we could just be known simply as Christians, if we could set aside our religious papers and set aside our denominational names and just be the church, wouldn't that be great? And to show you that they really did believe this, I have to tell you a little bit about these two individuals, Campbell and Stone. They disagreed on just about everything. Major theological positions Alexander Campbell was a Trinitarian. Barton W. Stone was not. Alexander Campbell believed that the Father and the Son were equal with one another. Barton Stone wasn't so sure. Barton W. Stone welcomed people into the church who were not baptized. Alexander Campbell was not so sure. They disagreed on major things. Major theological positions. In fact, they disagreed on virtually every major theological question that has been asked in the history of the church. And still they came together. And still they united. Because when they sat down and began to talk to one another, they realized some things. They said, We believe in Jesus. We believe Jesus is God's son. We believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again. And that's enough. The gospel is enough. So at the end of the day, church, here's where I come down. 
I may not agree with my brother or my sister on any number of issues. And I'm sure that I disagree with many of you in this room on a number of issues. But you are still my brother and sister. No questions asked. You are still my brother and sister in Christ because we are saved by Jesus. We are not saved by Jesus plus a certain worship style. We're not saved by Jesus plus membership to a certain political party. We're not saved by Jesus plus a certain kind of grape juice used during communion. The reality is many of us will disagree on many things because we're human beings and we disagree on many things. But that which saves us, the gospel, is crystal clear. And this is the gospel, church. Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus got up out of that grave. That is what defines our fellowship. Nothing more and nothing less. And I refuse to make as a matter of fellowship those things which we ourselves have an incredible, difficult time figuring out. If you've not heard the news yet, let me tell you, if you've accepted Christ, you have been set free. And as slaves made free, let's share that message with the rest of the world. Because that is good news. That's really, really good news. Would you stand with us?